Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network in association with Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshada Malik, and today I am joined by Dr. Lisa Wynn, Professor of Anthropology at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. We are in conversation about her book, Love, Sex, and Desire in Modern Egypt, Navigating the Margins of Respectability, published by University of Texas Press in 2018. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Wynn about how she engages with questions of mobility and method in Love, Sex, and Desire in Modern Egypt, Navigating the margins of respectability. All right. Uh, one of the it, it's such a rich text that you have for us, uh, Lisa. And of course, I'll start by asking you how was the project conceived and how you decided to write about love, desire, and sex um, as they punctuated respectability in Egypt. Thank you so much for having me, Lakshita. It's a real pleasure to talk to you about the book today, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, Okay, so how was the project conceived? It's a good question. Look, it was, you know, I didn't go there planning to study this at all. Like, in fact, I was I was doing my dissertation research in Egypt, and that dissertation research was on tourism. So I was looking at Western and Arab tourism and how they interact with each other and how they don't interact, how they have like you know, Westerners have completely different ideas about Egypt than the Arabs do. So when I say Arabs, I'm talking about like Gulf Arabs that go to Egypt, usually in the summer for vacation. And they have like these completely different imaginations of Egypt. You know, the the Westerners think of Egypt as like this ancient land of pyramids and stuff. Whereas the Gulf Arabs, they know Egypt as sort of like the Hollywood of the Middle East. It's where they go for a chance to like spot their famous, their favorite film star or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. so completely different imaginations of this. So in the process of doing this research, you know, I had Egyptian friends and I was hanging out with these people in, um, especially I was going to nightclubs because one of the things that I was looking at was belly dancers. So belly dancers are like one domain where um, the Western and the Arab imagination of Egypt come together and meet. Like it's one of the few places where you'll see both Western and Arab tourists in the same location. So I was going to these uh, nightclubs and everything and um, to see belly dancers. And I guess I was just, people kept talking to me about love and desire and about dating and about respectability and about how women should behave. And it just caught my attention because it was, you know, it was just what everybody was talking about. And it, another factor was that I was at the time I was married to, um, 
a man who had been uh, born and raised in Saudi Arabia. So he also, and he wasn't with me. He was living in the States at the time. So we were living apart and um, he was really worried about how people would take my interest in these, you know, belly dancers and what they would think about me going out to nightclubs without my husband. And, and he was really concerned about my respectability and didn't think I was being a very respectable wife of an Arab man. And um, so I was like, you know, in my personal life, but also in my professional life, a lot of people were continually theorizing the uh, love and sex and desire and respectability. And, and so I just started taking notes about it, even though it was not my research topic at all. I just kept taking notes and kept taking notes. And, and then finally, you know, there came a time when I thought, I just, I have to write about this. Right. Right. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, And just like going off of that, these are some complex questions of love and violence and intimacy that you deal with and uh, not just your own, like you said, but uh, not just your interlocutors, but also your own. And how do you write positionality in a text like that? Where, Mm. like you said, in your own text, you say it's not a character you're supposed to retire Mm. to get to the other person, but how, how do you write uh, methodologically position yourself while writing? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that was the hardest thing I had to deal with was how much do I write about myself? Cause look, on the one hand, it was really clear that the kind of information that I was getting from people pertained to how they perceived me. You know, the fact that I was an American woman, I mean, I'm based in Australia now, but I'm originally American. So I'm this American white woman who's doing her PhD Uh, And I'm doing my research in Egypt, but I'm married to an Arab man, but that Arab man isn't with me. And that seemed kind of suspect to a lot of people, right? So people were like in Egypt, my, my research participants and my friends, they were all trying to figure this out and like understand what that relationship meant to me. And, you know, what did my husband think about what I was doing there? And, and also a lot of my friends, I guess at that time, they were all dating. Um, they were, you know, thinking about getting married, but not quite there yet. By now, most of them are married. So if I did this research now at the age I'm at, like this, you know, middle-aged woman with, with kids talking to other middle-aged people with kids, like these issues probably wouldn't come up. But, you know, when I was first starting the research, I think, um, it was just that time in everybody's life when my friends were working out, like, what does it mean to be respectable? Who do I want to marry? What am I looking for in a partner? And so, you know, there was just this constant dialogue about that. And, and I realized that the things that they were telling me had so much to do with how they perceived me. And then I was grappling with my own relationship and that was shaping the kind of research I was able to do because my husband at the time, he was not happy with some of my research. He didn't want me hanging out with belly dancers. As far as he was concerned, belly dancers were whores and like, that's what he called them, right? He called them prostitutes. And, um, and it really, it drove me crazy. And when I mentioned it once to one of my belly dancer research participants, it really pissed her off, right? Like it was not respectable way of talking about her in it. Um, So all of that fed into how I was thinking about, 
everything, you know, about relate gender relationships, how men and women interact, how, how everybody reads each other. And so, yeah, I realized that I had to, I had to write myself to some degree into the text because it was, you know, I mean, this is an insight of phenomenological anthropology is that everything we know, we know through our bodies, we know through, you know, the, the horizon of our own perceptions um, and through those intersubjective relationships that we're developing with other people. But at the same time, I was really wary because I didn't want to, I didn't want to write too much about my husband. I mean, he wasn't my research participant. He didn't decide to be part of my research. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was this constant sort of tug in my mind. Like on the one hand, I felt like, well, this is my life. I should be able to write about myself. And right. on the other hand, I'm thinking like, well, this is his life. And he didn't ask to be written about. So I had to be really careful about how I wrote about my husband at the time. You know, I mean, by the end of the research, uh, we were divorced or, well, separated. And, um, and by the time I wrote the book, we were divorced. And, and so I had to write really carefully to write as little as I could about him while simultaneously writing about our relationship to the extent that it mattered for understanding the data that I was getting, if that makes sense. It was really complicated and I really struggled with it. And I remember when I was um, a friend of mine, I was, uh, she was reading the draft of the, of the manuscript before I published it. And uh, she, she read it and she wrote back to me some feedback. And one of the things she said to me was, um, I want to know more about your relationship with your husband. Can you, can you, elaborate more on this, you know? Mm -hmm. And at that point I thought, okay, I've, I've actually, I've reached the perfect point of balance here. If I left the reader wanting to know more and not feeling like they know enough about my relationship with my husband, because it wasn't about that, right? Like it was only relevant in as much as it was shaping how my research participants were talking to me, what they understood about me and what it influenced them to tell me. Right. Right. Yeah, no, thank you for that. It, it keeps coming up throughout the text and, and you, it's it's clear that you're grappling with that uh, throughout the text. It's not just like a, a a thing you mentioned in the very beginning or the very end. Mm. The other thing that you keep grappling with in your text um, is the point of political positioning and, and the book time and again, you mention of how of how careful you are of presenting your data, especially when it comes to representing violence mm. in the world. And, and I wanted to know how you delineated these political stakes and how you went about addressing that. And what are these stakes? Mm. Well, I mean, I guess from the very beginning of when I went in to do my research project and when I was you know, writing about belly dancers, I was really aware of the politics of representation. There's this long mm-hmm. history of Western authors writing about the Middle East as this kind of sexually charged space. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1978, Edward Said published his book, Orientalism, that was really influential. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought that was groundbreaking. I mean, everybody who was reading it in English thought it was groundbreaking. But in fact, you know, there are there were Arab and Egyptian intellectuals who were leveling the same critique against Western uh, 
writers, people who are writing in European languages about um, about the Middle East, they had been leveling that critique for like literally decades before Said wrote his um, book. So that book was really influential because it got everybody thinking about the politics of representation and about how, um, you know, his argument in part is that the Orient exists as a kind of a foil for understanding the self and, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a space where everybody is always um, in a subordinate position vis-a-vis the Western writers. And then there was this um, Syrian British historian named um, Rana Kabani, who she's based in the UK. And then she published this book, let me think, what was it called? Um, I rem- I always remember the subtitle, which was Devise and Rule. I think it was Europe's myth, Myths of Orient, Devise and Rule. And so in that book, Kabani basically takes the arguments of Said and she applies them specifically to sex and sexuality in mm-hmm. the Middle East in the way that uh, European and uh, American authors have written about sexuality and sex in the Middle East. And uh, one of the things that she argues is that uh, representations of Middle East sexuality are always shifting as a kind of a, an opposite of whatever our um, sexual morals are in the West. So, you know, back in the Victorian era, when there was this high uh, value placed by the European bourgeoisie on monogamy and, and sexual restraint, Right at that time, then European writers who were traveling through the Middle East were representing the Middle East as this space of like polygamous sensuousness. You know, the harem, the sultan with all of his uh, many wives, like this space of like um, perverse sexuality from the perspective of Europeans. Right, but then as Western sexual morals shift and there's more value on uh, sexual liberation, right, with um, Mm -hmm. the women's movement in the 1970s and so on, then all of a sudden these representations of the Middle East shift and now the Western authors are representing the Middle East as this space of repressed sexuality. Right. And so Kabani points out, like, look, isn't this interesting? You know, uh, we're presenting the Middle East as the opposite of whatever we are historically. And so I was really aware of the politics of representing Middle East sexuality from the very Mm -hmm. beginning. And, uh, but then it was, as I was writing this book, I started reading more about that and, Mm -hmm. and realized that the situation was, you know, it was even a little more fraught than I think I'd even realized when I, I was reading and I discovered that, um, Laura Bush, you know, on, right as the U.S. is invading Afghanistan at the start of the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura Bush is saying, oh, well, we have to do this because we've got to save these, these uh, oppressed women from, from the Taliban. You know, I mean, so, so representations of gender and sexuality in the Middle East are literally used to justify war, right? So they have real political stakes. And that's what I was grappling with. And, and so I had gone into this wanting to represent like love and affect and desire and like these, these real powerful emotions that people feel that are positive and they might be complicated and there might be judgment there and, and so on. Right. But overwhelmingly, like, 
you know, I was trying to write a positive story about sex and love and desire in the Middle East. And then, you know, it got complicated. So I was right at the end. I mean, I was nearly done writing my book manuscript. And then I'd gone back to Egypt to do some research on another topic. And I'm sitting there talking with this old friend, old research participant. And we're just chatting in the hotel room. And all of a sudden she reveals to me like this really horrible story, this really terrible thing that had happened to her where she'd been um, raped. And, you know, she'd been somebody who I'd been writing about from the start of the book. And she'd had these complicated relationships with men. And then she told me the story about being raped. And I realized that, wow, it was way more complicated and uglier than I had even realized. And I grappled with that. I, I thought, you know, do I, do I write about this? Um, and, and where do I write about this in the book? And how do I write about sexual violence in a way that does justice to her experiences um, without making that moment of sexual violence overshadow all the other experiences she had of love and desire? Because I'm so aware of the fact that right now, you know, a, a dominant representation of the Middle East is this space of Arab male sexual aggressors, you know, and that's not the reality of it. But that is a dominant theme in our representations of the Middle East in English. Mm -hmm. And so I had to think really carefully about like, how do I do this without feeding into that narrative? Because it's so much more than that. You know, on the one hand, I want to represent the fact that sexual violence, it happens. It happens in Egypt. It happens in the US. It happens in Australia. It happens everywhere. Right. Right. Um, And that was the reality of Sarah's experience. And it shaped how she dealt with men. But at the same time, I was afraid that, you know, readers who would read it from a particular angle and that would be what they would focus on and they would ignore all the other kind, sweet, loving men who loved their partners, who, you know, who weren't violent. So it was, it was a real struggle. I mean, it actually stopped me from writing for a while. Like there were, there was a year when I was just like, Oh my God, what do I even do with this book manuscript? It took a while before I figured out what to do with it. I'm not even sure that I made the right decision. Hmm. No, these are complex questions. And thank you for sharing your struggle because I think a lot of uh, researchers can share the same uh, of what happens to your work once it's published. Uh, Mm. Those are some important concerns. And speaking of that, the question of respectability, as you use it, that the term respectability keeps coming up again and again, and you grapple with the term, You, you refuse to define it obviously because your interlocutors are not able to define it in a specific stable manner Mm. and you juxtapose it to the term honor which appears in kinship literature in the middle east and you say respectability is not something you inherently possess but something that can be lost something that can be earned again and both men and women have are embroiled within this politics of respectability right so If you can speak a little more to this, like political and analytical or methodological significance of this term, because people literally use it to make their way around the city in intimate mm. and non-intimate ways. Yeah, right. So, okay, before I'd gone into the field, of course, I'd been reading this literature that's really predominant in, um, you know, anthropological and other literature on the Middle East. 
this honor and shame literature, this idea that there's like this cultural complex of honor and shame where everybody's working to preserve their honor uh, vis-a-vis, you know, their social world and that honor inheres in women's sexuality. I mean, that's the, that's the core argument of much of this literature. Although of course there are other people like, um, Uni Wiccan and Leila Abu Luhod, who have really complicated this a little bit. But I was still expecting, I guess, to hear like these words, honor and shame, you know, um, when I went into the field. And I guess it was after I'd been there for a year or something that I realized all of a sudden that I wasn't even sure what those words translated as in Arabic because it wasn't what I was hearing. Like what I was hearing from people all around me, whether it was my husband telling me to like keep yourself respectable, he would tell me, you know, or um, my, my friends would talk about like who was respectable and who wasn't respectable. And I never heard anybody say like he has honor or she has shame or whatever, you know? And I realized that there was this disjuncture between how the literature was uh, representing the region as a whole and what I was finding in this particular cultural space at a particular historical moment in time. And, um, and that's when I started thinking, okay, well, how do these, how do these categories um, in the literature, in the academic literature shape what we look for and what we find? And, you know, to, to, to be completely fair, I had already been thinking about that even before I went into the field because I was so influenced by the work of Leila Abu Luhod. She had written this ethnography called Writing Women's Worlds. Uh, I think it was published maybe in 95, something around there, and where she basically, she takes these five categories that she says have dominated the anthropological writing about the Arab world. So honor and shame, um, like cousin marriage, things, uh, polygamy, things like that. And, and so she organized a whole book around these topics and, and showed how, how the people who she was doing research with related to these or didn't and how they sort of sometimes inhabited these, these ideals, these cultural ideals. And sometimes they didn't. And, and she, it's a really beautiful, nuanced ethnography. And I thought, well, like I could, I can only dream of being able to do something as good as that. And so I, I was thinking really carefully about what do these categories mean? And, and, you know, like I had to, it's at this point when I was in the, I was in Egypt doing my research and I'm sort of rereading some of these texts. And all of a sudden I realized like, what even are these words in Arabic? I don't even know, like honor, what, you know, is it that's like respectability? Is that is that what people meant when they're talking about honor? So then I go and I talk to one of my friends and I kind of explained it to him and he says, No, like honor is shut off and shame is odd. And I realized like, wow, I've literally never heard that term, odd, like shame. Except, you know, in the way it gets conjugated into the word for like naked. <laughs> you know. Um and, and so I guess it was at that point that I realized, okay, I need to be really careful about um, the way I approach these topics and make sure that I don't have these blinders on the, of, you know, the way that my thinking has been shaped by this prior literature. I need to look at how people are describing themselves. And they weren't saying 
he has honor, she has shame. No, they were talking about respectability. He's respectable, he's not respectable. And, um, you know, maybe the stakes were higher for women, but both men and women could be respectable or not respectable. And so I started paying close attention to how people described each other in that way. Right, right. No, thank you for that. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many rich details in your book and, and it emerges in, in these different chapters that you have. One in particular, I'm going to digress a little for now, but we'll come back to respectability again. Uh, and because I really want to talk about this chapter on tourism and the tourist industry, which was so fascinating and, and such an interesting way to understand Orientalism mm. and play on my mises. And the particular character of the Kirti, is that how you pronounce it? Um, yeah, Kirti. Yeah, something Kirti. like that. Yeah, uh, uh, if I want you to, yeah, just if you could talk a little more about that that play between the tourist guide, which is the Kirti, and the uh, the tourists, right? Mm. Okay, well, so you know, I'd been studying tourism. That was the whole dissertation research topic, and um, so to do that research, I had arranged with this shop in the Khan Khalili, which is like the sort of central tourist bazaar. Um, where all the tourists go to get their souvenirs and so on. But it's also a place where Egyptians shop for like gold and silver and other things. So I had arranged with this um, shop owner to be based in his shop um, a few times a week. I'd just go and hang out with the people who worked there and observe the tourists coming in and out and how they interacted with people. And what I observed is that lots of times, um, you know, a tourist would come in uh, with a an Egyptian man, usually, who would translate for them. And one day I noticed, it was really funny, this guy comes in with this tourist woman, and he's like, you know, translating for her. She speaks in English, and then he translates to Arabic and talks to the shopkeeper who, speak, who responds in Arabic, and, and so on. Anyway, it was really funny because the shopkeeper I happened to know spoke like amazing English. Like it was just as good as the English of this, um, of this like tour guide who was with this woman. And I was thinking like, why, why doesn't he just speak in English with this woman? Uh, why are they going through this whole like ritual of translation? And so after she made her purchase and they left, I, I was asking the people about it and the people who worked in the shop and they're explaining, Oh, okay, well, he's a khirti. And like, I'd never heard this word before. And so it's like this local word that they have for it in the Khalili in this tourist bazaar for people who, I mean, I guess the best translation I could come up with is a hustler, like a tourist hustler. Um, because it has, it carries the same kind of negative connotations of somebody who, who works just to like his entire job is kind of to, um, entrance tourists, whether male or female. And so sex can be implicated in that, but not necessarily, but it's somebody who like makes a kind of a cultural connection and a linguistic connection with tourists and says, okay, I'm going to take you around and show you like the best hidden places. And, and then, uh, that'll, you know, like they use that to, to make the tourists feel like, wow, they found like this hidden gem um, and like this, 
this local guide who's going to show them things that the other tourists don't get to see, right? And this is this is something that has been written about at length in the literature on tourism, is that one thing that tourists always want is to feel like they're not tourists, right? They want to feel like they, they've somehow gotten closer and reached a more intimate state um, with the place where they're, you know, exploring and visiting. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, these the people the shopkeepers explained to me that there there was this whole system where these tour guides would tell the tourists like here I'm going to show you like these hidden places and I'm going to get you this really good deal and they make it out like they just are so happy to spend their time hanging out with the tourists and and then what they do is they circle around back afterwards to the shops where the tourists have bought stuff and they take a cut of whatever the tourists spent. So um, the shopkeepers were participating in this whole ritual and pretending to let the guy bargain them down in price when actually they're hiking up the price to take into account the fact that the tour guide or the tour tourist hustler is going to come back and take his percentage. So I started trying to analyze that. I mean, certainly I was really aware of these hustlers because me looking very um, American or, you know, Western, at least I looked like a foreigner, right? I spoke Arabic, but I definitely looked like a foreigner. And every time I went downtown or to the tourist bazaar, you know, as I was walking to the shop where I was based, like I was just constantly being catcalled and people are like, trying out these clever little sayings that they would use to try to get tourist attention, you know, they'd say like, oh, excuse me, you dropped something. And you turn around and look at them. They say, your smile, you dropped your smile. Give me a smile, you know? Like Anyway, like every day I'm getting this and nobody seemed to recognize that I was coming back to the same place over and over again, right? Like I was always the foreigner and it was kind of simultaneously maddening and also fascinating. Like, you know, so I started wondering, okay, what's going on here? Well, like it's, and if you start thinking about what's happening, like economically speaking, okay, so tourists, if they knew that their tour guide was taking a percentage of whatever they spent, like they would be annoyed, right? They, they feel like they're getting like, that they've got this friend and they're getting this special discount and really he's hiding, you know, his own pecuniary interest in them. But the reality is these tourists are taking advantage of these tour guides, right? Like, everybody has to make a living. So I don't know what we as tourists think these people do. Like, do we think that they're independently wealthy and they have nothing else to do, but like hang out with tourists who are passing through? No, like they have to make a living too. And the tourists aren't paying them to be their guides. So that's how they make their living is they take a cut from what the tourists spend. Um, And so then I had to start thinking about this complicated, uh, you know, relationship of desire and disgust, I guess, that mm-hmm. that tourists and tourist hustlers feel for each other. There's actually this really great article um, by somebody who's doing his research in um, in Palestine and Israel, where in, in Jerusalem, he writes, the name of the article is Fucking Tourists, right? And it means both right. things. It's about the tour guides who, like, are simultaneously, like, you know, often seducing and having sex with the tourists who they're showing around, but also like they're really sick and tired of the tourists, you know, like fucking tourists. 
Um, so like, you know, that really beautifully encompasses, um, this complex dynamic that's, that's going on here, you know, the, the interplay between disgust and desire that shapes this complicated economic and also intimate relationship. And so I tried to describe that. I had a hard time with it because like, you know, I, I, the, I didn't much like these tourist hustlers that I ran into. I could hardly stand to talk to them sometimes, you know? Um, but at the same time, like I had this really good friend who I'd originally met when he was like looking to hang out with um, foreigners and speak English with them. And I got to know him really well. And he became, you know, one of my best friends. And now he's like, you know, this wealthy businessman, he probably makes a lot more money than me. And, you know, in part, that's because he was, he was hustling, right? Like he was out there getting to know foreigners, practicing his English, perfecting his English. And so I guess that made me realize that this whole category of the hustler is really unstable, right? We use this, these derogatory phrases to describe somebody who hasn't gotten it right, right? Who hasn't quite persuaded you that he's your friend and that he's going to, you know, show you all of these secrets. Um, and, and so in and of itself, that's an unstable category. And that's part of what I was trying to excavate as I was writing this chapter. Right. No, that's, that was like probably a favorite chapter of mine. It was so interesting to read and, and you sort of take that theme of movement and, and talk about your excursions with your friends, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the friend who was the belly dancer and had the dance studio, uh, for instance, and, and you embedded within this kinship literature of exchange, which I mm -hmm. thought was really interesting, uh, of not just as stable structures where men exchange women, coming from Levis Strauss, of course, but, but where everybody is exchanging each other and, and economy and intimacies get complex, uh, become complicated, uh, become linked in complicated ways, basically. And, and yeah. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to speak a little more about that and then hopefully we can go into uh, and, and that sort of also delves into this question of then prostitution, which if, if you can delve into both of these things. Okay, sure. You might have to remind me and keep me on track about what I'm supposed to talk about. But um, okay, so wait, so the first thing is Levi-Strauss. Okay, so Claude Levi-Strauss, this anthropologist who was, you know, the father of structural anthropology, where he writes about... Kinship as a system of men exchanging women all around the world. Like he basically argues kinship exists for men to exchange women so that men create stronger relationships with each other, right? It's like this, this kind of maddening, kind of fascinating argument um, that, you know, uh, there's so much of value in Levi-Strauss that I, I don't want to dismiss him. But at the same time, like nobody can read this and not be like... <sighs> <laughs> like the world is more than just men exchanging women, dude. So right at the very end of his big book, you know, um, where he's talking about uh, structural anthropology and the kinship system and so on. Uh, he, he has this, these almost throwaway lines where he's talking about, um, about, you know, affect and how people feel and how they inhabit these structural roles where, where he clearly indicates that it's 
there's more that's going on. Obviously he knew that, right? Like he's not naive. He knows that there's, there's so much more going on than just this structural exchange of women. Right. And that was, he was trying to do something really radical and unique by, um, by reducing everything to this one system of exchange. Um, so like without wanting to, you know, um, not appreciate, like I wanted to appreciate Levi-Strauss for what he was doing, which was really unique and radical and interesting. And, and Mm -hmm. I said, so I thought to myself, okay, well, one way we might do that is by looking at the ways that women are exchanging men, right? It's not just men who are making connections with each other and building political alliances by exchanging women, although you can clearly see that happening. And so that's what was happening when this belly dancer took me to these dinner parties with these wealthy businessmen, they would show up with, um, you know, there was a couple belly dancers. There was a, a business, a divorced businesswoman who was in a relationship with this um, wealthy businessman. There was, um, there was me, you know, the Western anthropologist, like all of these women who were um, being brought into this male homo social space where these men were connecting in order to, you know, build their own alliances and so on. And they were using women as a way to do it. So I was kind of interested in that, but I could see also at the same time that clearly what is also happening is that women were exchanging men, right? Like the belly dancer who invited me to come along with her to this party. She's, she's doing that in part because she knows it'll get her like some credit with this group of people to bring like a new woman to like gawk at and talk to and try to seduce. Um, But at the same, so, so she's using it to build her own social capital, but she's also using it to help me because she knows that I want to talk to these other belly dancers and understand this whole world and stuff. So there's lots of people benefiting socially and politically from these exchanges, you know, and, and I guess that's what I tried to describe. Now you asked me a question about how prostitution comes into that. Can you elaborate? Like, how do you want me to discuss that issue? Because that's, that was a core theme in the book. And I'm using that term prostitution and prostitute deliberately and not like sex work and sex worker, because I want to, you know, evoke like, the shame and the stigma that goes along with that label. Right. No, I, I was actually really fascinated by how you used the term, which was never to take it for just on the face of it and just move along and just not question it. Mm-hmm. But you go into rich like detail about how it was historically uh, constructed and has nothing mm-hmm. to do with uh, women exchanging sex for money. Right. And, okay. and, yeah. and how that forges certain subjectivities and socialities in Egypt around this term. And and would that look Okay. So, I mean, I guess it started because, you know, as I mentioned, my husband's always telling me, keep yourself respectable and don't hang out with those prostitutes. And I was like, they're not prostitutes, they're belly dancers. And he's like, no, you know, they're, they're not respectable. And so, um, And so I was really kind of fascinated with this idea, like, why is he calling these people prostitutes when he does not know if they have sex for money? And then, you know, I start asking my friends, well, like, oh, well, okay. I mean, 
I did, it doesn't come out of the blue. Like my friends also keep talking about, look at these prostitutes over there, you know, like they're using this term, they're slinging around this stigmatizing phrase all the time to describe women who are like those other women, not like me, you know, like they would say, for example, we'd go out to this um, club and my friend would be like, Oh, see the prostitute over there. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like, what makes you say she's a prostitute? And he's like, Oh, well, look, you know, she's got like this sort of long reddish hair. So she's probably a Russian and everybody knows Russians are prostitutes. And I was like, Mm, I have this sort of reddish hair, um, you know, back before it turned gray. And uh, so probably other people are looking at me and they think like that's a prostitute. And he's like, no, 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 no. Everybody knows you're not a prostitute. <laughs> like the hell they don't. <laughs> and so I guess what I realized is that people are just like slinging around these phrases as a kind of a way of disciplining uh, women into under in, into knowing how to behave properly, right? Like my friends were always so polite to me, but by s- talking about those other women who you know aren't with their husbands, who are hanging out, uh, you know, with other men at nightclubs at night, you know, I, I I realized how I fit into that category, and then I assumed, okay, probably other people at this nightclub are looking at me and judging me in the same way. So I started thinking, okay, how is this working? How how does this label work to discipline women into certain kinds of behaviors? And also to, it wasn't just disciplining me. I mean, it was like, my friend was making me feel rewarded, like, oh, those other women aren't respectable, but we know you and we know that you're a good, respectable woman, right? So he's making me feel like part of the club and like he understands me and and he knows I'm a good girl or whatever. Um, and then, like, I guess I realized at one point he's talking about somebody who's like, she's a prostitute because she doesn't live with her family. She's independently wealthy. She moved out. And so she hangs around here with guys. And I was like, mm, okay, there's something I'm not understanding here. Because if somebody's independently wealthy, then why does she need to exchange sex for money? And he's like, yeah, she doesn't, you know. And then I realized, okay, we are using this term differently. So I realized at that point that even when we we're speaking in Arabic, he would use this term prostitute in English because it sounded more polite in English. Um, than than the word in Arabic. Um, But really, he didn't mean what I meant by it. He wasn't talking necessarily. He could be, but he didn't necessarily mean women who were exchanging um, sex for money, right? Like he wasn't talking about sex work. He was talking about a category of respectability, about like who was respectable and who wasn't. And so, yeah. That's when I started thinking, okay, this, this word is unstable and I have to pay attention to how people are using it and what they mean. Right. No, that, that absolutely comes true, especially when you, and you sort of hint pointed that out is like separating you and the people you're hanging out with versus the others. Mm-hmm. Like you're not one, but we know they are, or, or she is, right? right? And and you move through your text from, it's like wildly different classes and uh, social groups, right? Mm. And one of the things that I found interesting was that in some of these cases, some of these people are not likely to interact with each other at any given moment, right? Sarah, who right. works in the antique shop, or 
Malik. I don't know if I'm pronounced. Is it Malik? Yeah, Ma- Malik, that- yeah. Yeah. Look, these and aren't their real names, but yeah, that's how you would pronounce it. <laughs> right. But these people are not likely to interact in the same spaces or what you call intersubjective encounters that mm-hmm. are sustained or, or recurring. How do you think that... I mean, the category is unstable. Respectability as a category is unstable. But mm-hmm. how do these sort of restricted social worlds, right? How, how yeah. do they influence? Um, right. Okay. So people's social class definitely influences like, you know, the kinds of things that women can do um, before they get the label not respectable. Um, so, you know, uh, middle class People were much more judgmental and more closely scrutinizing what women were doing. Um, and then like the very upper class people, they could get away with a lot more. It was seen as completely normal to go stay out late in nightclubs until two in the morning and so on. Like you could do that and get away with it and not like suffer. Your reputation wouldn't suffer too much if you were really poor um, like the the poorest classes, they could they could really um, they they had different, I guess, sexual ethics and and morals than than the middle class. So I was I was constantly paying attention to that, and and trying to figure out what everybody um, meant when they're using these terms. But I guess the main thing that I realized was that um, the term is inherently unstable, right? It's, it's a label that people give people. It's not like some absolute category that of respectability that somebody can obtain or not obtain, but it's a way that people gossip and judge each other. And, um, and once I realized that, you know, I guess I felt like a lot freer myself (laughs) Um, and also a lot more constrained in a way, because I realized like I was never going to achieve some state of respectability, but it was always going to be, um, like this shifting field of judgment that I had to navigate. And it was the same for everybody else, every other woman and even man who I was talking to. Right. Right. No, thank you so much. Uh, I would love to keep talking more, but I've taken up so much of your time already. <laughs> but thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today and for all of your insights. Once again, I am Lakshata Malik, and this is the discussion on love, sex, and desire in modern Egypt, navigating the ma- uh, navigating the margins of respectability, published by University of uh, Texas Press 2018. It has been brought to you by New Books Network in association with Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.